This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Well, friends, the Church is teasing us a bit this weekend, offering some glimpses of the Holy Spirit in advance of the great Feast of the Spirit, which is Pentecost, coming up in two weeks. It's as though the Church is, is sort of getting excited about the arrival of the Spirit, and it wants to share with us in advance some insights, some glimpses of the work of the Holy Spirit. So each of our readings for this sixth Sunday of Easter offers a kind of tantalizing peek at the being and action of the third person of the Blessed Trinity. In the first reading, which is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, we hear about the mission of Philip the Apostle to the town of Samaria. So remember, after the persecution around um, the death of St. Stephen, a lot of the first Christians fled from Jerusalem out into the country. There's a sermon for another day, but of course, that's how God can use the negative for positive ends. The persecution of the church led to these first great evangelical missions. So Philip goes to Samaria, and his proclamation of the gospel was accompanied, we're told, by some pretty spectacular things. Unclean spirits coming out of possessed people, many paralyzed and crippled people being cured, etc. You know what's interesting, friends, is you'll see this a lot in the history of the church. When missionaries go into uh, places for the first time with the gospel, very often their preaching is accompanied by these rather spectacular demonstrations of the Spirit. And, you know, I think we can see why. If the Lord wants to impress upon a people the power of the gospel, he might use these rather extraordinary, spectacular means. Again, you see it up and down the centuries when the missionaries go forth. Well, when the chief apostles in Jerusalem heard about this, they sent Peter and John, two apostolic heavyweights, in order to pray with the people in Samaria and to encourage them. Now, here's the interesting thing, and here's where the Holy Spirit comes in explicitly. They prayed that the newly baptized, those who had heard the gospel, been baptized in the name of Jesus, might receive the Holy Spirit. They laid hands upon them, and then we're told the Spirit fell upon them. It's a curious expression. You find it a lot in the Acts of the Apostles. The falling of the Holy Spirit. Some power coming down upon them from on high. Now, you know what's interesting here is water baptism in the name of Jesus and this baptism in the Holy Spirit are recognized as separate events, separate moments, you might say, in the same process of bringing someone into Christ. The Church now to the present day mimics this in making baptism and confirmation separate sacraments. Intriguing, isn't it? If someone's being drawn into Christ, baptism is the first step. 
But very often we separate those out where confirmation comes later, the sacrament of the Spirit. If you look now throughout the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is associated with special gifts conducive toward mission. See, it's not just spectacular things. All these amazing things have come down from heaven. No, no. They are gifts, charismata, Paul calls them, charisms, that are for the sake of mission. No one in the Bible, Old Testament or New, is ever given an experience of God without being given, at the same time, a mission. The Holy Spirit now is what equips someone for mission. The powers that you need to announce Christ, to bring Christ to others. So here's the question now that arises from reading number one as we meditate upon this action of the Holy Spirit. What gift has the Spirit given you? Again, I'm presuming not everybody, but probably most listening to me are baptized Christians. Many probably confirmed Catholics. Okay. You've been baptized in the name of Jesus. You've received the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is it? What's the charism? Paul identifies preaching, teaching, organizing, administrating, healing, speaking in tongues, prophesying. All of those he identifies as charismata, gifts, charisms of the Holy Spirit, equipping the church for its mission. What's yours? See, friends, there's the bottom line. There's no question more important than that. You've got questions about you know, your family, about your career, about your success, about things you want to achieve in life, etc. And those are all fine, all good questions. But the question is, what is the Holy Spirit empowering me to do better? What has the Spirit already empowered me to do? See, in baptism and confirmation, we have these gifts. Now, how do we use them? What are they? In some ways, there's no question more important to ponder in your life than that one. Okay, let's look at reading number two, also focusing on the Holy Spirit. It's taken from that wonderful first letter of Peter that we read often during the Easter season. Peter is writing to a Christian community in the midst of a critical and sometimes outright violent society. He's clearly writing to a church that is being persecuted. As we know, it happened a lot in the early days. He's telling them how to engage those who stand outside the Christian faith, even those who are meeting it with criticism, disdain, or at the limit, violence. Well, Peter famously says, listen, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. It's a very cool, very interesting formulation, isn't it? Suppose somebody knows you're a Christian. Maybe they're just intrigued. Maybe they're indifferent. Maybe they're hostile. But they want to know what it is that's giving you hope. You see how Peter, first of all, identifies hope as central to the Christian thing. We are people who live with a new kind of hope that's born of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But see, he's also assuming something here, that the Christian faith is not an irrational superstition. It's not opposed to reason. 
it can be explained and should be. What you've got here, it's very intriguing to me as a theologian, what you've got here is the beginning, the scriptural beginning, of what later the Church will qualify, characterize as fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. We don't have an irrational faith, but one that can be brought to reason and should be. And therefore, those who hold the Christian faith should be equipped to speak about it reasonably to anyone who asks. Now, I know this is stuff for a whole other sermon for another day about apologetics, but I think it's a very important point to meditate upon. You should be ready. I mean, you Christians listening to me. Anytime someone asks you, why do you believe this? What's the ground for your hope? You should be ready and able to respond. Now, maybe not at the level of Thomas Aquinas, who is, but at the level of reason. Order to those who might be asking you these questions. You know, what happens a lot, as you know, is uh, we retreat into privacy. Uh, I don't know. I was just kind of a private uh, you know, conviction of mine. Oh, it's just a personal matter. But see, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. It never has been. You should be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. But I want to focus really for today on the second part of Peter's recommendation. Listen, but do it with gentleness and reverence so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The society Peter is talking about is not entirely unlike our own. We're living at a time when there's a great deal of hostility toward religion, especially toward Christianity. If you doubt me, just look in the papers, look in magazines, watch TV. Did you know, too, that Christianity worldwide right now is the most persecuted religion in the world? Did you know the 20th century produced more Christian martyrs than all the previous 19 centuries combined? In a far lesser minor key, take a look at my internet forum sometime if you doubt this. Look at the comments on these YouTube videos I do if you want to see some of the profound hostility to the very idea of religion. Well, here's the thing. How does a Christian engage all this? With reason, yes, indeed. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. It's not a, a private, irrational superstition. Okay. But also now, with gentleness and reverence for the objector, even when this is extremely difficult to muster. That's what Peter is saying here. When you engage someone who's hostile to the faith, even to the point of persecution, you still must do it with gentleness and deep reverence. Christians must respond, in short, in the spirit of the crucified Jesus, who forgave, yes, even those who were putting him to death. This is the attitude born of the Holy Spirit, who is the love between the Father and the Son. That's why now we're speaking of the Holy Spirit here. When you respond to criticism, to objection, even to persecution— but in an attitude of gentleness and reverence, you are in the Holy Spirit. 
whether we're arguing with an opponent of religion at a cocktail party or whether we're facing our own martyrdom, this must be our spirit. Okay, now finally a brief look at the gospel at our third reading. Speaking to his disciples the night before he died, Jesus tells them that he and his father will send another, and the word in in Greek is parakletos, a paraclete. The word is from kaleo, to call, and para, for, or on behalf of. The parakletos is an advocate. It's a word you might use for lawyer. Someone who pleads on behalf of another, someone who supports, advocates, and encourages another. See, Jesus is the first advocate, but he will depart physically from the scene. But he's saying, my Father and I will send the Holy Spirit as a friend, supporter, lawyer, advocate, pleader, inspirer, for Christians up and down the ages. And this should give us great hope. When the martyrs went to their deaths, it was with the help of this paraclete. When the missionaries went to proclaim the faith in hostile lands, it was the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who pleaded on their behalf. When Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling, it was the Holy Spirit who sustained him. When Thomas Aquinas wrote his theological masterpieces, it was at the prompting of the advocate. When Edith Stein went with her Gestapo captors to Auschwitz, she went with and in the Holy Spirit, the advocate. So friends, a final question as we're approaching Pentecost, the Feast of the Spirit. What is this parakletos, this advocate, prompting you to do? And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers. Every day, everywhere.